We are going to be thinking again tonight about uh, the letters from Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor, particularly to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2. But before we get to Revelation 2, I'd like to begin tonight by reading to you from Acts 16. So if you want to turn back towards the front of the New Testament to the book of Acts, chapter 16, I'll read to you from verses 11 through 15. Acts 16, 11 through 15. So putting out to sea from Troas, we, that's Luke and Paul and their other traveling companions, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia, a worshiper of the Lord, meaning she was a Gentile who attended the Jewish worship services, became a Christian that day in Philippi. But we're told that she was from the city of Thyatira, which is where we turn our attention tonight in Revelation chapter 2. And I read that passage to you from Acts 16 because I was wondering this week, why was there a church in Thyatira to begin with? Thyatira, if you look it up on Wikipedia or in a Bible dictionary or something like that, you'll find that it was a small town, uh, quite an insignificant town compared to the other towns that we've been considering and will consider. It's a town that Paul himself apparently never ventured into, never preached the gospel inside the city of Thyatira, just a small town known for its uh, textile mills, which is what Lydia was involved in as she sold purple Fabric, And yet there was a church there. We don't know how for sure that that church began. Perhaps it was a spinoff of the church in the larger city of Ephesus that Paul did plant. We saw that from Ephesus the gospel went out all over Asia Minor. So perhaps someone from Ephesus went to this small town of Thyatira and started a church. But it's also possible that this woman Lydia and her family who were brought to Jesus and baptized that day in Philippi eventually went back to Thyatira and carried the gospel with them then. Either way, it's not unlikely that this church that Jesus writes to this evening was begun by lay people, by normal Christians who went to this small town with the gospel and proclaimed it and a church began there. Maybe it was Lydia, a retail saleswoman working in the cloth industry, who went back to her hometown and shared the gospel and eventually a church formed. Maybe she opened up her own home to other people the way she did her temporary home in Philippi to Paul. Maybe it was someone like a doctor from a big city like Ephesus or Pergamum who became a Christian and said, you know, they're underserved in Thyatira medically. I'm going to go there. I'm going to help them. And while I help them medically, 
I'm going to share the gospel with them. And perhaps that's where the church came from. Perhaps some churches will arise like that in Haiti in the months that are ahead. Maybe it was simply a stay-at-home mom or a manual laborer who was from Thyatira and who was working in Pergamum or Ephesus or one of the larger cities who went back home for a visit or who moved back home and started a church. Or maybe it was some regular Joe from Ephesus who decided, I'm going to move to this little small town. I'm going to get a job in the textile mills. I'm going to start a Bible study in my home. And eventually it grew into a church. We don't know how for sure, but the point is... I hope that you're encouraged tonight to think about the power of the gospel and the value of the witness of normal people like Lydia or like the normal people in Ephesus. It wasn't the apostles who started this church. It was probably some normal Joe or Jane from Thyatira or from one of the cities around, maybe even Lydia. Whole churches sometimes are born out of the faithful witness of a few normal Christian people. Or whole churches are blessed and grow and reach a community out of the faithful witness of a few normal people. However it happened in Thyatira, one thing we know is that 40, 50 years on, there was a steady church there. And we know that Jesus has more to say to this small town church in Thyatira than he does to any of these other churches in Asia Minor. There is more here than in any of the other letters. And I want to consider what he says to this church tonight under five headings. Five headings of Jesus' words to Thyatira. First, he says to them, I know, verse 19, I know. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. I know. Now, if you look at these letters carefully, you'll see that the second sentence of every one of these seven letters begins with those same two words. Jesus begins every letter by saying, I know. And it's a reminder again, as we've seen already, that Jesus does know that he really is walking among his lampstands, that he really is observing his people, that he really is caring for his people, knowing what's going on in their lives. He knows. And that's the significance, incidentally, of how he describes himself here in verse 18. The son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. He's the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. And that means, I think, symbolically, I see. Clearly, I see everything. I know. I am the son of God. I have eyes like a flame of fire. My feet are like burnished bronze. And I say this to you, I know. And we've seen it, as I said, over and over. We saw it last Wednesday in Smyrna. As he said, I know that you suffer. We saw it on Sunday where he said to Pergamum, I know your sin. And tonight he's saying to Thyatira, I know when you succeed too. I know when you suffer. I know when you sin. But I also know when you succeed. That's what Jesus says here. You're doing well and I see it. And the illustration that helps me to sort of feel the joy that should be felt in verse 19 is to think of a dad who's in the stands watching his son compete in an event, whether it's a sporting event or a musical event or whatever it may be. The dad is in the stands, and of course, if he's a Christian, he's doing this in a humble way, but he's in the stands and he's saying, that's my boy. Great job, son. I'm so proud of you. 
That's what Jesus is doing here in verse 19. He's cheering on his people, commending them for their successes, commending them for their deeds in general. That word deeds is a general word, but then he goes on and commends them for four deeds in specific. I know, first of all, your love. I know your love. The church in Thyatira apparently was not like the church in Ephesus who had the right deeds and the right doctrine but had lost their first love. Now apparently these people had love for God. They still felt what they ought to feel towards God and the gospel and they had love toward one another. That's an area in which some of us struggle, isn't it? We know the right things, we do the right things, but we don't always feel the right things and we don't always love others as we should. But these people loved And Jesus saw that. And then he says, I know your faith. Your faith. Faith has kind of two two meanings. I'm not sure which one he means. Probably both. When we talk about faith, we mean sometimes the faith, the right beliefs, the right system of understanding. And perhaps that's what he's saying here. I know your faith. I know that you believe rightly. You're not like the people in Pergamum who are being carried away by strange doctrine. You believe the right faith. Or maybe he's saying... Not, I know that you believe the right things, but I know that you're banking on what you believe. In other words, I know that you believe rightly, but I know that you trust me. Both things are good. And he says, I know your faith. Then he says, I know your service. I know your service. In other words, their love and their faith weren't just words and ideas, nebulous things. Their love and their faith for God, their faith in God, their love for one another were proven by their actions, by their service. And it's good to ask yourself, are my love and the faith that I hope that I have toward Jesus and the love that I have towards others, are they proven by my service? And then he says, I know your perseverance. All of these churches are dealing with suffering in one form or another. Some of them are suffering because of the government. Some of them are suffering because some of the Jewish people in their city didn't like what they had to say about Jesus, but they're suffering. And he says, I know your perseverance. I know that you haven't given up in the midst of that. And then on top of all that, he says at the end of the verse, I know that you're getting better and better at each one of these things. Your deeds of late are greater than they were at first. So they're growing. And we should, just before we leave verse 19, we should just sort of line up our own spiritual report card with these categories. Love. Faith, service, perseverance, continual growth. Ask yourself, how do I grade in those areas? Love, faith, service, perseverance, continual growth. If in some of those categories you have a D or an F, know that Jesus knows that he's the one, verse 23, who searches the minds and the hearts. And he calls you to repent. But know also that if you have an A or a B plus in any of those categories, Jesus knows that too. That's what he's saying here primarily. I know your deeds. I know that you're getting an A and that you're getting B pluses in these various categories. And I'm so proud of you. You're doing well. And we need to be able to receive that from Jesus. Sometimes we have a hard time receiving perhaps the compliments that Jesus wants to give us. 
And, and part of that is maybe a good thing. We should be humble. We are aware of our sin. We're aware that anything good that we do is a gift from Him, that apart from Him we can do nothing. And so we don't want to go around looking for pats on the back. But sometimes because we are trained in the Christian faith to be humble rightly, sometimes we have a hard time receiving the compliments and the commendations that Jesus may actually have for us. And so if you do, if you have sometimes a hard time seeing that God is at work in your life, hear what Jesus says to the church in Thyatira. I see, I know, I know your deeds, I know that you love, I know your faith, I know your service, I know your perseverance, I see that you're growing, and I'm pleased with you. And if Jesus really is pleased with you, let him say that to you and receive it tonight. So first of all, he says, I know. Then secondly, as we move on into verse 20, he says, I have. I have. I know your deeds, but verse 20, I have this against you. But you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I have this against you. Now the things Jesus has against the people in Thyatira are very similar to the things he had against the people in Pergamum on Sunday. And so I don't want to dwell here for long, but it is worth one last brief tap on the nail, perhaps to drive the nail in place, the nail of conviction if you need it driven. Jesus scolds this church for the presence of immorality, first of all. And some of us may need to be scolded for that tonight, whether it's in our minds or in our bodies. Immorality. He scolds them for that. He scolds them also for idolatry. In other words, they were compromising their faith at the world's altars. Again, we don't have the same kinds of altars that they did, but we have altars in our world, places where we're tempted to compromise the faith, to set aside what we really believe and stand for, because it's easier to do this thing over here. And Jesus says, when you do that, I see, I know, and I have that against you. Don't compromise your faith. Don't compromise what you stand for. More importantly, Jesus is saying, don't compromise what I stand for by bowing at the world's altars. And then he scolds them for a sin that is really the root of those other two. The first two sins were immorality and idolatry, but he scolds them for a third sin. I called it immunity, so it would be a third eye. Immunity. Toleration. That's what they were doing, isn't it? I have this against you. Not that every single one of you is involved in immorality and idolatry, but that you tolerate it. Within your church, you tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and leads people into immorality and idolatry. You are immune to sin, apparently. It doesn't feel to you as disgusting as it ought to feel. And we spoke on Sunday about accepting as normal things around us that ought to make us sick. And that's what was happening in Thyatira. They were accepting as normal behavior things that ought to have made them sick. Or if they weren't considering it normal, they were just sweeping under the rug so that everything went on as normal. But they should have been sick. They should have been upset. They should have been fasting. They should have been weeping. They should have been rending their garments and their hearts. And apparently, they weren't. In Pergamum, there was a problem of immorality and idolatry, and some of the people, not all the people, were involved. In Thyatira, there was a problem of immorality 
and idolatry and some of the people, not all the people were involved, but apparently the people who weren't involved just tolerated it. And that's what Jesus is upset with them about. It wasn't just that there was a self-appointed prophetess leading people astray just like Jezebel did in the Old Testament. It wasn't just that a number of people were following her, but it was also that the rest of the church was looking on and saying, what are you going to do? They overlooked it. They tolerated it. You tolerate immorality, he says. And so what Jesus is giving really in verse 20 is a clarion call, not just to Jezebel, but to the whole church in Thyatira and to us as well, saying to us, Keep the church pure. Don't go sweeping sin under the rug. It's just as bad to sweep sin under the rug as it is actively to participate in it. And note this well. People don't begin to tolerate someone like Jezebel overnight. What happens is that they begin first by tolerating smaller sins in their own lives and in the lives of people that they're supposed to love and hold accountable. Dishonesty, bitterness, people who claim to be believers but just in various ways obviously didn't live like it. If you begin tolerating those things and ignoring those things and sweeping those things under the rug, then eventually the sins that you're willing to ignore and tolerate get bigger and bigger and uglier and uglier. And everything just blows up. That's why Jesus says in Luke 16, He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Or to to combine that with what he's saying here, the church that tolerates little sins, the church that overlooks little sins, will also tolerate and overlook big sins eventually. And the point is we simply must be willing as a church to hold one another accountable. Not to nitpick, not to be taking the specks out of other people's eyes without taking the logs out of our own, but to hold people accountable, even in the little things. Each of us needs to be willing to seek accountability when we're struggling with things. Each of us needs to be willing to receive accountability, even when we didn't seek it and it came out of the blue. And each of us needs to be willing to provide accountability for other people. And on that note, I just want to issue a sort of a personal plea as your pastor that you do that, that you be willing to provide accountability. Whenever there's been need for accountability, when I've been involved and known about it, you all have, many of you sought it and you've received it, but make sure that you're involved in providing it. In other words, I know that it's my job and the elder's job to be on the front line when something's going wrong, to be there and to try to help somebody out of the pit. But you need to do that too. And it can be very burdensome and wearying when all that falls on one or two or three people. When every time someone's struggling, it comes down to one or two or three people having to deal with that. That can be very difficult. And so Jesus is asking us not to tolerate even what we would consider normal sins, but to help one another. I have this against you that you tolerate. Let it be that he doesn't have that against us. Thirdly, he says, I gave. I know your deeds. I have this against you. Verse 21, I gave her, 
Jezebel time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. I gave. I gave her time to repent. Now, things are going to get ugly when we get to verse 22. But before they do, I just wanted to pause here in verse 21 and notice the patience of Jesus. I gave her time to repent. This is not, you know, she had a problem with gossip and we had some consultation and I gave her time to repent. This is not, uh, you know, he had a problem with lying and so we, we talked a little bit and we gave him time to repent. This is, she's committing adultery, she's committing idolatry, and she's leading other people into it. And yet Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. That's amazing to me. That Jesus didn't just cut this woman off immediately. He gave her time. How much time? We don't know. But enough, apparently. It's amazing. Especially when we consider our own lives. Do you remember what you were like before you came to Christ? Do you remember? I mean, how you lived for yourself. You lived in ignorance of what God says. Many of you lived in open immorality. All of us lived in various forms of idolatry. And He gave us time to repent. We should be absolutely astonished that Jesus, in His justice, did not wipe every single one of us off the face of the earth a long time ago. And when we consider how we still sin against Him, even now with the Holy Spirit living in us, helping us, we still sin against Him. We should be amazed at His patience toward us. That, as Ezekiel 18 says, He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That He is, 2 Peter 3, 9, patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's exactly what we find in verse 21a, isn't it? I gave her time to repent. And that's exactly what we found in our own lives. And so we should just pause in our hearts right now and thank God for His patience. Thank Jesus that He gave us time. And then we should also learn a lesson as we seek to practice accountability in the church. Jesus, yes, scolds us if we tolerate sin in verse 20. But by His example in verse 21, He also commends patience to us. Not toleration of sin, but patience. And and here's a reminder between these two verses that there is accountability and there is discipline for God's people, but the goal of the accountability and the discipline is always repentance and restoration. It's not just to make a clean break and to get the problem off of our hands. That's not the point. That wasn't what Jesus was trying to do. When He had every right to do it, He still gave this woman time. I've been thinking um, in in regard to this, about broken limbs. That's the picture that I have in my mind for someone who's in gross, unrepentant sin. It's like someone who has a compound fracture and the bones are sticking out of the skin and there's great risk for infection when that happens, isn't there? And what Jesus is saying here is when someone comes in to the emergency room with that problem, you don't just immediately amputate the leg, do you? Generally, you... Hope for healing. Sometimes you have to amputate. And he says in verses 22 and following that he is going to amputate now finally. 
There wasn't healing. Things didn't get better. And so there's a time to cut the problem off. But that's not his initial response with Jezebel. It's not his initial response with us. It's not his initial response with people that we're trying to hold accountable. It's just to amputate them and get the problem out of the way. The initial response is I'm going to try to set the bone. I'm going to try to heal the wound. I'm going to try to give it time. And we need to be willing to do that. We need to be willing to be patient in the practice of discipline, to give people time to repent. But the main point in verse 21 and following is what happens when she does not want to repent. And that's the fourth heading. I have this against you. Excuse me, I know your deeds. I have this against you. I gave her time to repent. And then fourthly, I will. I know I have, I gave, I will. Verses 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. I will, Jesus says. I will do certain things. And there are three groups of people that he speaks to and three separate frightening promises that he makes. Notice all three of them. First, Jezebel herself. She was obviously the ringleader of the sin in the church. And he says in verse 22a, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. In other words, she's going to die an excruciating death. She's not going to die in her sleep. She's not going to die in a freak accident where it happens like this. She's going to suffer and die and then there's going to be hell beyond because only the ones who overcome at the end of the letter inherit eternal life. Jezebel's certainly not one of those. She's going to suffer and she's going to die and she's going to die the second death and go to hell afterwards. And that's a solemn word for those who lead churches astray. Jesus has strong Words for those who lead churches astray. Secondly, he speaks to her children, Jezebel's children. I don't think it means literally her children, her physical children. I think he's speaking of her children in the sense of those who followed her, those who bought into her lies, hook, line, and sinker, those who joined the club. They were right there with her in unrepentance, and he says about them, I will kill them with pestilence. With sickness, the same kind of thing that he promises her, and then there's hell to follow. And then there's thirdly a slightly different group. The third group of people, not just Jezebel, not just her children, her her devout followers, but then in the middle of verse 22, he speaks about those who commit adultery with her. And I say they're different because out of the three groups of people, those who commit adultery with her are the only ones to whom the possibility of repentance is held out. Do you see that? Those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw them into great tribulation unless they repent. This is a little slightly different group here. Jesus is not all the way finished with them yet. And apparently what this signifies is that there were some who had bought into everything that Jezebel was about. They were wholesalely following her. They were her children, Jesus says. But then there were others who hadn't gone that far, but they had been sucked into her schemes of adultery. Both figurative adultery as they turned away from God and committed adultery against him and physical adultery as immorality, sexual immorality was part of the problem. But they weren't 
yet full-fledged followers. These were people who hadn't gone all the way yet. And to these people, Jesus promises great tribulation. Maybe he means some sort of sickness, something else perhaps. But he promises them tribulation that may not end in death if they repent. These people have still an opportunity. And most of us, if we fit into any of these three categories, hopefully we don't fit into any three, but if we fit into any of the three, most of us would probably fit into that third group. Most of us in this room, I don't think, are outright apostates. We haven't totally left the church and decided we're out of here and we don't want to do this anymore. Probably you wouldn't be here if you were. But all of us are tempted to be sucked in, like these people were, to sinful habits, to idolatrous habits, to fits of sinful passion, and so on. And so the message of Jesus, if you're tempted to commit spiritual adultery, to turn away from God and to turn towards sin and begin that kind of habit, the message of Jesus is something like this. If you want to go wading chest deep in the cesspool of unrepentant sin, and if you stay there, and if you don't immediately repent, and if the church either doesn't do anything about it or doesn't know about it, don't be surprised, Jesus says, if I do something myself, something drastic. Isn't that what he's saying? If you don't repent of what you're doing, I'm going to do something drastic, verse 23. The church should have been there doing something, and they weren't. Sometimes people are sinning and the church would do something, but the church doesn't know about it because the person keeps it secret. And what Jesus is saying is if the church doesn't do anything or doesn't know anything, I know and I will do something. And Jesus says here that unrepentant Christians will be brought back to repentance by means of great tribulation. Maybe he means sickness. Maybe he means financial difficulty. Maybe he means heartache. Maybe he means injury. Probably he deals differently with different people. But he he holds out the possibility of tribulation to bring us to repentance. And that means that what we need to do is run our difficulties through the sieve of Revelation 2.22. When you face difficulties... You need to consider among all the possibilities that one possibility is that God might be trying to bring you to repentance. Now be careful that you hear this well. I'm not saying that any difficulty you face is because you're in some sort of unrepentant sin. So we don't need every time something goes bad to just consider that as the only possibility and then to contemplate our navels until we figure out something that we did to deserve it. That's not what he's saying. In fact, I think that the reason behind the tribulation that the Thyatirans were experiencing was obvious to them. In other words, I don't think they had to do a whole lot of introspective thinking. I think they knew what they were doing. They knew where they were sinning, and they weren't surprised, therefore, when Jesus spanked them. And that's the point. If in your life you have at one and the same time unrepentant sin and great difficulty... You might want to put two and two together. That's what Jesus is saying. When tribulation comes, if you haven't recently done any self-examination, you should probably ask yourself, is there any obvious unrepentant sin in my life? Obvious sin. Not, not, you know, one time when I was 16, I talked back to my mom and I never apologized for that and that's probably why I just broke my leg. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you're suffering... 
and you haven't thought about it in a while, you need to back up and say, okay, there may be a hundred reasons why God is doing this, but one that Jesus speaks about is maybe I'm sinning, and I know I'm sinning, and I'm not doing anything about it. And if that's the case, then again, put two and two together. Take an honest look in the mirror and repent. Now, someone says, why would Jesus be so harsh? Didn't we just say he was patient and forgiving? Well, yes, he is patient and forgiving, and that's precisely why he is sometimes so harsh. Jesus wasn't making these people sick in the end of verse 22 because he was cruel. He wasn't doing that as a final solution to their sin. He was doing it so that they might repent because he's patient, because he wants all men to come to repentance. And according to verse 23b, he also chastised them so that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. In other words, Jesus chastised the Thyatirans for our sake and for the sake of the Ephesians and the Smyrnites and the Pergamites and so on so that the other churches, ours included, might realize that sin is serious, that Jesus is watching us and that Jesus is not like the people in Thyatira. In other words, Jesus will not wink at unrepentant sin. He won't sweep it under the rug like sometimes we are tempted to do. So let's learn from the Thyatirans' tribulation so that we ourselves don't have to deal with the same. And the question would simply be, are you tonight involved in some activity that you know the Lord hates? Mental, physical, verbal, heart activity, whatever it is. If you are, No one else may know about it. But he's the one who searches the minds and hearts. He knows. And today is the day to repent. And finally, Jesus says, I know, I have, I gave, I will, I come. I come. Verses 24 through 29. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those verses, I think, can all be summarized just by reading verse 25. What you have, hold fast until I come. And I think for this gathering of people that this may be the most applicable part of this letter. I don't discount that there may be someone here tonight who has fallen away. In other words, you once walked like a Christian, but you've become totally apostate. You've left that behind like Jezebel and her children. And I don't discount the possibility. In fact, I know that it's a reality that there are some tonight here who have never come to Christ in the first place, repenting of your sins and trusting in his death and resurrection on your behalf. And if that's you, I'd encourage you just now while I finish speaking to everyone else to repent and to turn to Christ nor do I discount the possibility that some of us may be under God's chastisement this evening. And that what we really needed to hear was verses 20 through 23. So if that's you, hear what he says to you. 
But most of us, I think, probably fit under the umbrella of these last six verses, verses 24 through 29. Namely, we're sinners to be sure, but God has mingled a lot of grace in with our sin and we are walking with him in relative faith and obedience. That's what the rest in Thyatira were doing. That's what many of you are doing. You're a sinner. You struggle. But overall, you're walking with the Lord. You've stayed with Him. You're trying to obey Him. You're trusting Him. And if that's you tonight, what Jesus says to you in verse 24 is, I place no further burden on you. I've talked to you about tolerating. You need to be careful about that. But I place no further burden on you. In other words, you don't need to leave tonight and try to manufacture some deep sense of, of conviction that God is not actually placing upon you. You don't need to leave tonight and try to manufacture some reason why maybe you really are one of Jezebel's children after all and you've just never realized it until now. Jesus isn't asking you to do that. Instead, what he's saying is, if you're walking with me, I know you're a sinner, I know you struggle, I talk to you about tolerating sin, but I place no further burden on you. Keep going. Keep improving. But what you do have, he says, verse 25, hold fast until I come. What you do have, don't lose that. And what do you have? Well, if you're a normal, faithful Christian, you have, verse 19, love and faith and service and perseverance. And Jesus is saying, hold fast to those things until I come. Hold fast. Keep going in them and keep growing in them. Make sure that it can be said of you, your deeds of late are greater than at first. Hold fast. Or as Jesus puts it in verse 26, overcome. And if you do, he says, you'll reign with me. Verses 26 and 27. You'll reign with me in the new heavens and the new earth. You'll have authority over the nations and so on. Now, I don't know exactly what all that's going to entail someday when we reign with Christ and have authority over the nations. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But I know it's good. And if you overcome, Jesus says in verse 28, I'll also give you the morning star. The morning star, what's that? Well, the morning star is one of those stars that you only see after the night is almost all the way gone and morning is about to dawn. There are sometimes stars that you can see only at that portion of the day and they're signifiers of a new day dawning. And those are important in certain cultures. People who are watching all night long, who are the watchmen in the city, they're waiting for the morning to come and the morning star was a signal. It's almost finished. Maybe in our culture we think about some of those times. Maybe you've experienced them when you're mourning over someone's death. And the nights just seem so long. Some of us, when our spouses die someday, will understand that. The nights just seem so long and you can't wait for morning to come. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to give you the morning star. After him, let me assure you now that a new day is about to dawn. And Revelation 22:16 explains exactly how that's going to happen because there Jesus says, I am the bright morning star. In other words, after a long night of sin, I am going to come and I'm going to bring a new day with me. To him who ever comes, I will give you myself. 
After the night of sin and suffering and persecution and disappointment, I will come to this earth. I will right all wrongs. You will see my face. You will feel my embrace. And you will be with me forever, Jesus says. That's greater even, I think, than reigning over the earth. So, all you faithful Christians, keep going in the things that you are doing right. Keep growing in the things that you are doing right. And someday soon, Jesus says, you will have me as your reward. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.